you would turn to Galatians 3, we'll pick up there. We'd ask you, Father, to open our eyes and our understanding, Lord, that only you can do that. I ask you will not only do that, Father, but kindle a fire in our hearts, Lord, to follow you more closely and to make you our one aim in life, Lord, our one goal or the one thing we live for, that you'll rekindle that in our hearts. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And he said, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, well, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And the title of the message I have today is, Faith Alone Brings God's Blessings. So we're moving in here to chapter 3, and basically the first two chapters that we looked at were Paul giving his personal testimony, and through his own personal testimony, he defended the gospel. So he said his apostolic ministry and the gospel message he had came from direct revelation from the Lord. Neither of those two things had anything to do with Jerusalem or the apostles there. The Judaizers came, and they were trying to use that against Paul, use that against him. That's a negative. You don't have the same message as they do. And Paul says, contraire, mon frere, that's not the way it is. He says, unlike you, I don't depend on them, but my revelation, my credentials, everything I have came directly from God. God gave me my credentials. And he says, you all can't say that, but I can. Paul said he could say that. And then he goes on to say in chapter 2 that even though he received his marching orders directly from heaven, independently from Jerusalem, He's telling them there, look, but we're both preaching the same message. He said, Barnabas and I came. We laid out the message that we preached to the Gentiles before the apostles, Peter, James, and John, the big dogs. We presented our message to them, and they're like, we have no problem with the message you're preaching. It's the same one we have. The law doesn't need to be added. Nothing needs to be added to the message. The only difference is going to be, Paul, you're going to go to the Gentiles, and Peter is going to go to the Jews. But the message is the same. Praise the Lord. Problem that happens is then, again, through his testimony, says Peter betrayed that agreement in a sense of what we had and had to get up in his face because he was pressuring these Gentiles that they had to observe the Jewish food laws. And Paul uses this to clearly, again, at the end of chapter two, he clearly explains what the gospel is. So what he's done is in Antioch, the problem there was the food laws. The example he uses in Galatians, the problem was circumcision, but the two issues are similar in nature. Paul is saying the law in any form, whether it's food laws, circumcision, observing the Sabbath, whatever you want to say, all of that, if you're saying that is the means to be made right with God is against the gospel of grace. 
So he confronts Peter and he gives him the gospel of grace in doing that, because this is all a conversation that we're reading here in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. So I want to read again verses 15 and 16. And here's the gospel in a nutshell he gives. And he says to Peter, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing, we know this, that a man, any man, is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He says, even we have believed in or into Christ Jesus. We've been united to him that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And he says it for a third time, for by the works of the law of the law, no flesh, he's quoting a verse there, Psalm 43, no flesh will be justified. When we say that word justified, that is a big deal. It means to be declared not guilty, innocent, free of charges. And we said that is the great problem that faces every single man or woman born into this world. Everyone in here, everyone has a conscience. They know that we've sinned. They know they're guilty. All of us have known that. We know that we deserve punishment. And also you have this knowing that God is holy, just, and good. And so the question is, what can we do? We know we have to stand before God justified, but how do we do that? How does that happen? How can we be free of the charges? And Paul's answer is this. It's not by works of any kind. That's not how you're going to be able to stand before God just or righteous. So it's not the law. It's not by praying. It's not by lighting candles. Not by helping old ladies across the street. There's no amount of good deeds that you're going to do that are going to make up for your bad ones. And even the good ones you think you're doing as a sinner really aren't good in God's eye. There's a selfish motive behind it. Because a sinner is just selfish by nature. Everything he's doing, even his good deeds, are selfish by nature. This is what all mankind struggles with. That we're going to have our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. That literally is Islam. That's Catholicism. Islam literally teaches that one day on the day of judgment, they believe in a heaven and a hell. They believe in a day of judgment. They believe in one God, but they don't believe in the triune God. But they say one day there's going to be this angel And he's keeping tabs of everything, and there's going to be these scales, and you're going to have to stand before him. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll make it in. But if it's the other way around, you're out of luck. I talked to a Muslim one time. They think it's presumptuous for you to say that you know you have eternal life. He thought that was prideful for me to say that. I said, well, that's what the Bible says, what Jesus said. Well, no, you can't know. We can't know until we stand and have those scales put in place. But good and bad deeds, the bad deeds we've done, there's no amount of good deeds. That's not the way it works. We're guilty and condemned. That's the way it is. So we have to all watch that, though, because I think that we can tend to think secretly that if we do this or that act of kindness, this or that good deed, that somehow it's going to make up for the wicked thing we said about somebody the other day. I got to somehow make up for that. And it doesn't work that way. We have to realize that none of our good works are going to cause us to enter the kingdom of God. Our righteousness is never the basis for that. Paul says in Philippians 3, he said, Yet indeed, Philippians 3, 8, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. And listen to what he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but 
that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So the gospel of grace claims we have no righteousness of our own. It has to be given to us as a free gift, and we accept it by faith. The righteousness, it says, not my own righteousness, that's never going to get you into heaven. No matter how righteous you are or think you are or will become. He says we need the righteousness which is from God. That's the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ given from God to us. And we receive that as a gift by faith. The righteousness which is from God by faith. So we can't do anything to deserve to be justified. So I don't know if you all remember last week, Spurgeon gave that answer to that man who said he had to do something to deserve God's forgiveness. And he said, I tell you, sir, if you bring any of your deservings, you shall never have it. God gives away his justification freely. That's really something we'll amen and say, but it's like in our lives, that's not what we really think a lot of times, right? It's easy to slip into that other error of thinking we have to do something to earn his favor. Listen, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short, I mean way short, of the glory of God. Like, no getting out of that pit. But he says, being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Through faith. And so we said, the blood of Jesus Christ is what wipes our slate clean. That's the only thing. It's never our works that are going to wipe our sleep clean. First John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now that love and that blood that washes us is nothing we can ever earn. It's freely given to us by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how we're counted righteous. And the Judaizers, though, to end things here in this chapter 2, their whole thing was with a message like that, people will live any way they want. They'll just grab that free gift and say they're saved and just live like sinners. And there are a lot of people that do that. There's people that even teach that, ministers that teach that. And Paul's answer to that was, this is Galatians 2.20, is you don't understand the gospel. And now what he says in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he's like, God forbid in Romans 6, how shall we that are dead to sin, how can we keep living in it? And that's the same thing he says here in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've died to sin. That's the gospel. I have been crucified with Christ. And he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, in the flesh, I don't live in sin. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is basically saying the only life that I'm free to live since I'm united to Christ is the life that he lives through me. Really? That's the only life. All my ambitions, plans, and all that, right? All to Jesus. That's the song we sang. I surrender all. That means We don't lose our personality, but we lose our free will. And we have to live according to the spirit of Christ that lives in us. He's directing us. His fruit should be manifesting it through us. And we no longer should be living in the flesh, which is a life of sin. 
So we're expected to follow in our Lord's steps who was holy, spotless, and pure, right? That's what it says. We should follow in his steps. One comment I just want to make real quick. I said all of those first two chapters, that's Paul giving his testimony. But, you know, he's got some pretty deep theology in his testimony, doesn't he? That's all he's doing is giving his testimony. A lot of times, if you start preaching at somebody, a lot of times they shut you down real quick. But a lot of times you can start sharing your testimony. But if you think about your testimony, maybe before you go out and like, this is what I might say to a person, you can put theology in a sense in your testimony. Scriptural reasons about sin and how and people aren't generally offended by that. Just some food for thought. Because it's not just a matter of, well, God bless me with a new stove. That's not really going to bring somebody to the Lord, is it? That might be a springboard, but they need to see, and somehow we need to share our testimony that, hey, I was a wicked sinner. I realized I was going to hell. God dealt with me. And I was drunk one night watching Billy Graham realize he's preaching to me, and it brought conviction to my heart. I mean, you could just bring it in that way. People are listening because they're like, yeah, I was the same place or whatever. But he comes here in chapter 3, he's starting to directly address the Galatians. And he does that by beginning chapter 3, he asks them six rhetorical questions. So he asks them six questions, but they're rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question is one where the answer is obvious. You're asking a question, but the answer is obvious. And you're just doing it to make a point. You're not really trying to get information from the person. You're trying to persuade them by asking them a question with an obvious answer that they already know. And that's what he does here. So he asks these questions. And here, Paul's not getting into theology and asking him these questions. He's asking them, he's going, I'm going to ask you some questions based on your experience. And I'm going to use your experience to make my theological point that everything we receive from God, our righteousness, justification, the Holy Spirit, anything, it doesn't come through our works, not through our flesh. It comes how? comes by faith. So we pick up here in verse 1, and we've talked about this in the first message. It's been a few weeks back, but he, he's basically got this expression of disbelief. It, even that O there in the Greek, it's like, come on. Are, are you serious? I mean, that's the O. O foolish Galatians. And that foolish means they just have a lack of sense. Not that they're idiots, as some people will say, but you're just dull-witted. You don't understand something that you obviously should and did understand. And he's basically saying, come on, are you Galatians really this dim-witted that you act like you've been bewitched by somebody? That's what he's telling them. I like the way that the NLT, New Living Translation, kind of gives the sense of this. And this translation translates that first verse this way. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you for the meaning of of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. And that's what he's saying there when he says Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. He's saying he was placarded like a poster, like you could see it. My preaching just gave you a visual image. You could see him hanging there on the cross, so to speak, for your sins. He's aggravated by him because he know he preached the gospel to him. He know they clearly saw their sin, that they deserved judgment, and that the Lord Jesus Christ took their judgment on the cross in their place. And the cross through his preaching was magnified. And that's all that was magnified. <laughs> He's telling them all you have to do is put your trust in what he did on the cross. He took your punishment 
for you and nothing else. Nothing you could do, nothing you ever could do or had done is going to make any difference. So it's basically the song we sing. Jesus paid it all and here's the cross. All to him we owe. It is finished right there. And he's saying, you clearly saw that, but now something has clouded your vision. Someone's cast a spell. He knew who it was. It was these Judaizers. But he also knew it's kind of like a demonic influence that's working through them. That's why he kind of uses that expression, bewitched. I like what John Stott said about this first verse. He said this about the gospel, how clear it is. He says, the gospel is not good advice to men, but it's good news about Christ. It's not an invitation for us to do anything, but it's a declaration of what God has done. It's not a demand, but an offer. He says, and if the Galatians had grasped the gospel of Christ crucified, that on the cross, Christ did everything necessary for our salvation, they would have realized the only thing required of them was to receive the good news by faith. To add good works to the work of Christ was an offense to him. The way he's starting this off, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, that is like, in a sense, it's just like a slap in the face to wake him up. You know, you should clearly have known, he's telling them, from your own experience and from the scriptures, that the good news is received how you received it, by faith. He's like, what did I ever say in any of my gospel presentation? Where in any of that was this law that they're telling you you now have to add to that? Paul's like, why have you let these guys deceive you? Oh, foolish Galatians, why have you let them bring that in? In verse 2 now, the second rhetorical question he brings in, and he puts them in a corner. And he says, this only I want to learn from you. Or like the NIV says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Or the New American Standard says, this is the only thing I want to learn from you. You know, it's like when you have 10 ways that you could approach a subject, but you know that one will clearly make the point. Getting ready to talk to somebody, you say, okay, I could ask you a lot of questions, but just tell me this. And you know that the answer to that one question is going to answer them all. That's what he's saying here. Just answer just this one thing, you all. Just answer this one thing. And the question is this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And Paul says, I already know the answer to that question because I were there. I was the one that preached to you all. I saw when I preached the word of the gospel, the word of faith, and you heard it, I saw the results that happened. You didn't have to become circumcised first. You didn't have to quit eating pork or catfish. You didn't have to offer a sacrifice. No words of the law were required, were they? For you to receive the Spirit. All you had to do was to believe the promise. So the Holy Spirit is always received because He has been promised and that promise is believed by faith. And unlike what you're going to hear from most denominational churches, most churches that would teach this verse, they basically all start under the premise that when you are born again, when you're saved, that that automatically gives you the Holy Spirit. That's just an automatic thing. And if you all can bear with me, I know a lot of people know these verses, but it, if nothing else, it'll help you to go through them again in case you need to witness to somebody and share about the Holy Spirit with them. There's some people here that don't have the Holy Spirit. Put something there and turn back to Acts. I want to look at a few places in Acts, in Acts chapter 1. So we're saying you receive the Holy Spirit through believing the promise. 
Look in Acts 1, and here's where Jesus promises the original 120, the 12, the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but he says, this is the promise, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then look down in verse 8. He tells him again, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus clearly promises them at that point the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that this experience is going to give them supernatural power. But he's telling them, you are going to have to wait how? You're going to have to wait in faith. And then look over in chapter 2, and here it comes. It says, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting, and then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and did what? Began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, in the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, the whole shebang. He says, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this phenomenon of these people all of a sudden speaking the praises of God in languages from all over the world, what does this mean? And others mocking say, well, they got to be drunk. They're full of new wine. Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, he raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's too early to be drunk. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And here it was promised. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. They shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then skip down to verse 32. He's preached to them and he goes on to say, this Jesus, the one who I said you crucified, this Jesus God has raised up of which we were all witnesses and therefore being exalted to the right hand of God. 
and what? Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's that promise again. He's poured it out. Here, you've seen it. You've heard it. He's poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he said himself, The Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they're cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, the same promise, it's to you, it's to your children, but it's also to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The phenomenon of the Holy Spirit coming down, evidenced in speaking in tongues. So he's saying this speaking in tongues that you're seeing and hearing. That's what he's pointing to, isn't he? He's not saying, look at the joy on their face. Look at how happy they feel. He's pointing to the speaking in tongues, which you now see and hear. This is what was prophesied and promised clear back in Joel, where God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now, this is something the Jews were really looking forward to. But Peter says, it's not just limited to the 120 that you're hearing here. It's not limited to you 3,000 that repent and get baptized and receive the same gift in the same way. He said, no, it's limited. It's going to everyone else, every other Christian. That's the promise, isn't it? That is clearly the promise. Believe me, we're not going through the whole book of Acts, but if you would turn to Acts chapter 8. Turn to Acts 8. There is promise to everyone that's a believer. So in Acts 8, in verse 4, beginning in verse 4, it says, therefore, those who were scattered, the Lord sent persecution into Jerusalem. The believers were scattered. They didn't tell anybody about the Lord. It says they went everywhere. This is just church going. This is everybody, not just the 12, not the apostles, but they went everywhere preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Now look down in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. There we see they are believers and they're baptized. Now, do they have the Holy Spirit yet? You pick it up in verse 14 and it says this. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they came down, prayed for them for what? That they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for as yet he had fallen upon how many? None. Were they believers? Were they baptized? It goes on to say they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
You only baptize believers. In verse 17 it says, Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to where, what did Simon see that he wanted to have that power? Even your non-charismatic commentators will say he saw them, more than likely saw them speaking in tongues. And I say more than likely. I said, I think that really is what happened just because it doesn't come right out and say it. Here's one thing I want to say. We get this, this thing, it came into our church because we have people come in here, don't have the baptism, have no intention on having the baptism, and they're saying, you're making this two-tier Christianity, making yourselves better. Look, here's what we need to understand. In the early church, the early church, three things happened when a person became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed and gave their heart to the Lord Jesus. They were baptized and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of that happened within a short period of time. You don't find what we have in modern churches where someone will truly be a believer in the Lord Jesus. They hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. They're like the people in Acts 19. I haven't so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. They think they automatically got it. And then somewhere down the road, they realize there's more to this Christian life. Well, some people don't even get baptized right away for whatever reason. We understand that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendering to him makes you righteous. But it's like a wedding ceremony, okay? A wedding ceremony, you have vows that are said and a ring that is given, even though that'll probably go away. Does the ring make those people married? It's the fact that they've given their hearts to each other. That's the key thing, right? They've committed themselves. And the ring just seals the ceremony. But you don't wait until months later to say, I'm going to give you the ring. The Holy Spirit is called the seal of promise. You're not saved by getting the Holy Spirit, so to speak. But the early church didn't know saved people that either weren't baptized or did not have the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And so when you start looking at the Bible and other verses, Paul is assuming that throughout the rest of his New Testament writings that everybody received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. When he says, they that are Christ, anyone that has not the Spirit of God is not Christ, that's because he's assuming that every believer, because they did then, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we understand it here. So this whole thing about you're filled with the Holy Spirit and it happened automatically when you're saved, the New Testament doesn't know those kind of Christians is the point I'm trying to make here. And they made a big deal about it, didn't they? And that's how important it is. And so somebody that's going to act like, well, it doesn't matter whether I have the baptism or not. I don't really need that. I'm like, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Because as soon as they find out somebody has been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this empowering is so important to walking the Christian walk, and especially the Sermon on the Mount. They correct that like right away. So why does it say in Acts 8 that when they hear they'd received the Lord, what we just read, they send Peter and John down there right away to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. They don't wait. They don't say, that's no big deal. They're already spirit-filled. No, they weren't. We read that, didn't we? Why does Paul, when he says he meets these disciples in Ephesus, why does it say the first thing he asks them is, have you received the Holy Spirit if it's not that big a deal? Why does he make such a big deal about it then? Why is that the first question he asks? And hey, we need to get you filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized properly too. And Paul, Paul on the road to Damascus, he was already a believer. The Lord Jesus appears to him. He, he's a believer when that vision happens. And Lord, what will you have me to do? He was a believer at that point. And yet he's blinded and goes into town. And the Lord appears to Ananias. He says, Ananias, I'm sending you to this man. Ananias like, this guy here, I don't want to go. He's saying, I want you to go. He's a chosen vessel. 
And when Ananias came there, what did he say? Paul, you need to give your life to Jesus. What did he say to him? Go back and read it. He said, brother Paul. He was a believer. Paul didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. He had to be water baptized. And it says, Ananias prayed for him that he would receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus came and sent me to do that. That didn't happen on the Damascus Road. As great as that experience was, none of us have had any experience close to that. So Paul, that's when he got the baptism, right when he was saved. And it was a big deal. The Lord sent Ananias there just for that purpose. So we're going to say it's not any big deal. And once we have it, it's not any big deal. We don't pray in tongues much. It's just, ah, the Bible doesn't know that. None of that's in my notes. I'm sorry. But listen, Luke 11, Jesus said this. He says, so I say unto you, talking about prayer, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives. Anybody that wants the Holy Spirit will receive the Holy Spirit. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. He says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, is he going to give him a scorpion? He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit automatically? It doesn't say that. It says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That's what it says. you got to ask in faith. Because, as I started saying, the Holy Spirit is always received by faith freely. You don't have to do or pay anything. Now, I should have checked with Greg. I think I got this story straight. Having all those people, I couldn't remember 37 years ago, however many years ago this was. One time Greg called me up and we hadn't seen each other for a long time. And anyways, I'd gotten saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. He given his life back to the Lord and was going to a church. And I believe they had a class. You had to pay for the class to receive the Holy Spirit. And you were, is that right? Yeah. Pretty much. Okay, close enough. And I was just, my, my point was, I'm like, Greg, you don't have to pay or go to a class, pay or not, to learn. You know, in that sense, it's a free gift. That you can receive. It's just a matter of believing the promise. The only thing that is required, it's not payment, it's not works. I do believe the Bible says, though, there is one requirement to receiving the Holy Spirit. And you know what that is? Thirst. So I believe in every case, all these Christians that are receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is a thirst for more of God. Isaiah 55, 1 says this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. The invitation to the waters is thirst. Jesus cried out in John 7, it says at the Feast of Tabernacle, he says, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. But this it says he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing Him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's the invitation all through the Bible. And that requirement of thirst is found in the very last book of the Bible, in almost the very last verse of the very last book, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, 
let him take the water of life freely. So I would say according to life and according to God and his word, only the thirsty, the truly thirsty are going to receive the quenching of the Holy Spirit. And that is not something that should just happen one time in our life, in our experience, right? Ephesians 5.18 says, Paul wrote, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or a wasted life or debauchery. And that seems to be the big thing now. Let's get into wine. He says, no, don't be drunk with wine. Paul says, but be filled with the Spirit. That's an imperative. It's a command. Be filled. It's not a suggestion, and it's an ongoing present verb. Continually be filled with the Spirit. And as I heard one man say, we need to be continually filled with the Spirit because we leak. I think that's true. And here's the reason. Thirsty people, think about it, really thirsty people, if you've ever been really, really thirsty, are desperate. And the Holy Spirit comes to those who are desperate. They're the ones that will exercise faith. That's true of every case of faith in the Bible, whether it's for the Holy Spirit or any promise. Think about all the cases of these people that came to Jesus for deliverance, healing, forgiveness, Every one of these people were desperate. The lepers, the blind men. How about the epileptic boy's father? That man was desperate. The Syrophoenician woman, Jairus, with his dead daughter, his only daughter. Ruler of the synagogue comes throwing himself at the Lord Jesus' feet because there's the answer for him. There is no other answer. The Gadarene demoniac, the man was desperate, wasn't he? The centurion, the woman with the issue of blood. Medical science wasn't helping me out. I need help. This has been going on a long time. Woman with the issue of blood. In the Old Testament, you have Naaman. Naaman was desperate. That caused him to obey and trust and do something he didn't want to do. But he was desperate, wasn't he? Israel at the Red Sea says, by faith, those waters parted. They were really desperate. They thought their life was over. How about Daniel in the lion's dead? Those lions' mouths weren't shut because he didn't exercise faith. No, it says, by faith, the lions' mouths were shut. I'd be a little desperate if I had however many hungry lions with their bad breath staring me in the face. I'd be desperate too. And that's the way it works. Thirst kindled for the pure water of life. That's what we need to ask ourselves. Are we thirsty for that? For that pure water of life? And I think... I include myself, all of us. We need to pray for God to make us thirsty. Get that thirst kindled. Because here's the word that the Lord gave Jeremiah concerning Jerusalem. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's his complaint, isn't it? That's what brought judgment on them. They no longer desire that pure living water of the Lord, right? They've gone and hewed out cisterns. Cistern water is nasty, generally. So that's what we need to do. We need to seek God to make us thirsty again if we've lost our thirst. But the second thing is, he asked them, Second thing I want to get out of that verse back in Galatians is he asked them how they received the spirit. Did you do it by earning him or by faith? Was it by doing something or by believing? 
Everything we receive from the Lord is by faith. God never answers prayer based on what we've done. We can never present the works of our hands, what we've done, as the reason for God to answer prayer. I mean, that is Cain and Abel, isn't it? You know, Cain's presenting the works of his hands. What he's done, and Abel's presenting a sacrifice that was given to him, given to him by God. And that's what we offer to God as the basis of our faith in any promise. It's not what we've done. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's what we trust in, not our goodness. Our goodness is not what we bring before the Lord, even if we think we're doing good. First John 3 says, and whatsoever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So he's not saying that he answers like we've earned it somehow because we keep his commandments and do those things pleasing in his sight. He's just saying that when we obey the Lord, we keep the channel open to heaven. That's all he's saying. We're just doing what we're supposed to do. And so God can answer our prayers. And if you would, turn back to Luke 17. So everything that we receive from the Lord is by faith and in his righteousness and his blood, not in our goodness. And so in Luke 17, beginning in verse five, it says there, Jesus says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And here was his answer to increasing their faith. Basically tells him it's not a matter of a lack of faith. He says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. And so Jesus is telling his disciples and us that it's not so much more faith we need. A lot of people say, oh, I just had more faith. He's not so much saying that as we need to deal with known sin in our lives. And know that no matter how good we are, what we present as our good deeds is not the basis for God answering prayer. Sin just blocks the path. That's Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand isn't shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Because when things are right in your life and you know that, it's not so much you're presenting that before the Lord, but it gives you a boldness. Because Proverbs 28 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Luke 17 is saying this. You don't present your good works or obedience as the basis for obligating God to somehow answer your prayers. That's not the way it works. Obedience doesn't make you a profitable servant. That's what Jesus is saying. We need to realize this. We will always be unprofitable. We'll always be undeserving. The only one that is a profitable servant in God's eyes is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we point to him and his righteous life and blood as the basis for God answering our prayer. Because we're united to him, that's the basis for his answering our prayer. It's not based on what we've done. And God has to constantly remind us 
believe me, that we are nothing, that we're poor in spirit. David, he'd grown prideful and self-righteous, and God had to bring him down and show him that without the grace of God, he was nothing. That's what that whole incident with Bathsheba was all about. God allowed that to happen. To show David that any answer to prayer he got, any goodness in his life, anything he'd done good for the Lord was solely due to God's grace and nothing else. And when you see Psalm 51 is the cry of a man that God has brought down and humbled. A man that realizes I don't deserve. And David was pretty well progressed in the Lord. He wasn't like a teenager at the time he wrote Psalm 51. He realized at that point, all I deserve is God's judgment. Didn't he? With that stuff he did, that's as wicked as it gets. The whole Bathsheba, Uriah killing him, all the deceit, the murder, the adultery. And here's what he says in Psalm 51. You don't hear him pleading any of his own righteousness or his own good works. He says, have mercy. He begins it in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God. This is the man after God's own heart. According to your loving kindness, have mercy on me. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, he says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. It's got to be God's grace and mercy that does that. Nothing David's going to do is going to get rid of the stain that he's put on his life. He's saying, just please have mercy on me. He's not talking about Goliath at this point. He's not talking about all the Psalms that he's written. He's not talking about, Lord, I'm a man after your own heart, is he? He's not bringing any of that up. He knows his wicked heart is the way it is without God's grace. Will always be wicked. And he goes on to say this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He's like, that is my nature, apart from your grace. And he wants the cleansing that only God can give, doesn't he? And that's why we sing the song. He went on to say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He pleads, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. The great King David at the height of his life, begs God to send him to the restoration workshop. Doesn't he? That's what he does. And we can all learn a lesson from that, can't we? We really can. I can. No one else can. And so he's asking them, Paul says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And it's always faith. That's the obvious answer to the question. Remember he said it's a rhetorical question? <laughs> the answer is it's always faith. We receive everything based on faith. Simple trust in the promises of God. So like I've said, it's not our goodness, not what we've done, and, it is, and more importantly too, we need to realize it is not our need that causes God to answer prayer. It's not our need, it's our faith. Trust in His goodness and His willingness. Because if need was the basis, if pure need was the basis, there wouldn't be a sick, crippled, depressed, demonized, homeless person on this earth, would they? If, if need was the basis that God answered prayer, need isn't the basis. Jesus said in Luke 4, there were many lepers in Israel, lots of needs. There was a lot of widows that were poor and starving in Israel. 
But guess what? Their needs weren't met. They stayed that way because he said the only ones that had their need met were these Gentiles, which just infuriated the Jews in Nazareth, right? He said this name in the Syrian. He had faith. Same need as the people in Israel, God's people. But this guy had faith and his need was met. That Gentile widow up there, her need was met. God sent Elijah to her. But there was a lot of them that had the same needs that were God's chosen people. So it's not need. The father of the epileptic boy had a great need, didn't he? Jesus saw the need and he had the power. He's sitting there seeing this need and he's realizing, I have got the power. I can change this situation in a heartbeat, couldn't he? But you know what? He's telling this guy, you have got to have faith. It's just not your tears and your pleading. You have got to have faith if you want to have this need met. And the guy was desperate. Remember, we said desperation will create faith. And what did he say? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And he was helped. God will always help anyone that cries out to him. That's just the way it is. Never turns anybody away that cries out for help. So Paul goes on to ask the Galatians other questions. We said there were six questions he asked to show them that the Spirit of God was mightily moving in their midst through faith. And all of that, Paul's saying, all of that happened without any law-keeping taking place at all. What he's trying to tell them is that you're God's children, part of the family of God. Abraham's seed, he's telling them, not because you keep the law, but because you have exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sign that that's true the sign you, that you can know that, he's telling them, is they have been blessed with the promised Holy Spirit. They've experienced it. The Judaizers, what they're trying to say is the only sign you can know that you're God's child is with the sign he gave Abraham in Genesis 17. You have to be circumcised. That's the sign. And Paul says, no. Faith's what makes you right with God. And the promise that he's given the Holy Spirit is the covenant sign that you're right with him. It's in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. God says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. The fact that the Gentile churches received the Holy Spirit in the same way that happened on the day of Pentecost in the church at Jerusalem was proof that they were accepted by God. Peter, when he went to Cornelius' house, preached the gospel to them, told them of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he's brought before the elders in the church of Jerusalem. They're trying to say, hey, can you tell us why you went in these Gentiles? You know you're not supposed to do that. And Peter told them what he said to Cornelius and his family, told them that he preached the gospel, and this is what Peter says in Acts 11. And as I began to speak, Peter said, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter said, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So in other words, the sign or the proof that the Gentiles were accepted by God, that they were righteous through their faith, was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what 
Paul is telling them here. It's not because they kept any law. And here's the thing. When he came on all those early churches in the Bible, in the New Testament, he didn't come quietly. There were always signs and miracles following. That was the common experience. If you're back in Galatians, look what he says in verse 5. He says, therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the working of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's saying the Holy Spirit came. The proof you're God's people is these miracles and signs and wonders were happening there, including the speaking in tongues. All of it was. And that's true of the church in Corinth. Remember, we went through that and started in on chapter one. And Paul says, His grace was shown to you in that you came behind in no gift. That's all 12 of the gifts and there's some. He's saying that's the sign that you are God's people. The signs were so much the Holy Spirit, the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit was so much he had to regulate the gifts. That's where we have chapters 12, 13, and 14. Abundantly the Holy Spirit was manifest. In Romans 15, 18, Paul wrote this. This is not a common verse you hear. Paul says, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. He says, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Illyricum is modern day Yugoslavia. And what Paul is saying is, I went and preached the gospel, started all these churches from Jerusalem, really to the then known ends of the earth, (laughs) Eastern Europe. And he's saying, everywhere I've gone, the Holy Spirit was evidence that these were God's people and his evidence didn't come quietly. It came in power in miracles and signs and wonders from Jerusalem to Yugoslavia, the then known world. And the same thing happened in Thessalonica. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. My point I'm trying to make in that is that this whole thing of the Holy Spirit coming and being the evidence that you're God's people, and he doesn't just come quietly like a lot of churches will say now. Oh, he just comes when you make this prayer of faith and all that, and there's no evidence of him being there. So that's not what the New Testament shows. It shows when the Holy Spirit came and the gospel was preached, he didn't come quietly, but came in signs, wonders, tongues speaking. He was evident in their midst. The evidence and the experience of the early churches shouldn't just be left in the Bible, should it? I'm not going to settle for that, at least not in my own life. It should be our experience, the early church, because what happened is when the world creeped in to the early church, guess what dissipated? Tongues, signs, wonders, went to the back burner. By 350 was Constantine coming on, the church and the world were wedded. And that's when the power and the gifts, in essence, died out. Not completely, though. God's always had his remnant. He's always had those that are walking in the power of the Spirit. And I'd just like us all to consider that if we don't experience the presence of the Holy Spirit like we read about in the Bible, listen, the problem is never from God's side, is it? It's always from our side. Because that promise is always there and the Holy Spirit always acts as he does. Why is that the case? You can't control a group, but you can control yourself individually, as I've said many times, right? I mean, we're in the book of Revelations. He says, you just have a few there. The church as a whole was not doing good. He goes, but you have a few there that are walking with me. 
So it doesn't mean it's always going to be the group necessarily, but it should still be in the group. Why should our church be any different than any other New Testament church? So we compare ourselves not with what we see in this modern day American Christianity. We compare ourselves to what? What's our standard? It's this. That's why I said what all I said about the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Thessalonians. It's not hidden. The way the Holy Spirit manifested. I want to end on this note right here. I want to end on a positive note. You say, boy, that's unusual. Well, okay. But I'm reading all this and I'm thinking, okay, I know what happened in my own life. I can't speak for anybody else. I know how the Lord dealt with me, how he convicted me of my sins, how he brought me to repentance, how I had a hunger and thirst for his Holy Spirit, and how, man, when I got hold of that, the change it made in my life. Man, just bam, it made a huge change in my life. I'm taking that as an encouragement. That the Holy Spirit is in me. And it, the potential is all there, isn't it? It's unlimited potential that is in me. And not only that, the devil will come. He fights everybody. Are you sure you're God's child? Are you sure you're one of the elect? Are you sure you're one of these? Guess what? That's the answer to it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't ask for any of this stuff. I didn't look for it. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. God has sealed me for the day of redemption. Yeah. And as long as I don't resist him, he's going to bring me in by his grace. Not because I'm such a whatever. And that's an encouragement to me. I'm his child and he'll continue to work in my life. We can't take that for granted though, can we? Because every one of those churches in the book of Revelations were spirit-filled churches. People, churches that were filled with spirit-filled people. And yet they, he says to them, five out of seven, if you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick. We're like, well, hey, it's not like it should be in my life now, right? The evidence of the Holy Spirit, my closeness to God, being drawn to Him, the power that should be there, the influence I should have on people when I talk to them about the Lord. Guess what, though? God's not done talking to us, is He? He's not through with us. He hasn't said it's Ichabod, right? So let's repent if we need to and get back right with Him, amen? amen. And we'll see that evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and corporately. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you most of all, Lord, that not only for what the Lord Jesus did on the cross and dying on our behalf, but also that through that, Lord, he shed abroad this promise that you've given us of, of the blessed Holy Spirit, the ability to speak in tongues, edify ourselves, pray for others, that power that you've given us, the power to live the crucified life, Lord, I just ask that you'll bring all this back to our remembrance, Lord. Put that hunger and thirst for righteousness to living right before you and in the power of the Spirit that you've given us, Lord. That we can do that for your glory and for the, the benefit of others. And I just ask you, Lord, you'll make that real to all of us today and impress that on our hearts. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.